Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship you in the word. We ask you to guide and lead us, show us what you would want us to see from this, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 11. We're going to see one of the first dissensions of the church. Um, we've already had a few minor ones. This one becomes one of the bigger ones. In Acts 10, Peter witnesses to Cornelius and the Gentiles, builds a church. The Holy Spirit ministers to the church and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. And, he and so Peter baptizes them. And chapter 11 continues with that story. Verse 1. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into the men uncircumcised and did eat with them. But Peter rehearsed all the matter from the beginning and expounded it by the order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain vessel descended, as it had been a great sheet let, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even to me. Upon which were fastened, when I fastened my eyes, I considered and saw a four-footed four -footed beast of the earth, and wild beast, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not you not common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already in the house, come into the house where I was sent, where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me Go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, men, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell you the words whereby you and all your house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much then as God hath gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. A lot more than I normally read, but we've heard most of that story many times already. Um, so Peter comes back to Jerusalem after having started the church there in Caesarea with Gentiles and immediately the Jewish believers got upset with him. This is something that happens in churches frequently. When things change, you, you bring in people who just aren't like the rest of everybody else. And you'll see this many times when you start ministering to the down and out who bring nothing to the church other than their sinful lifestyle and a love for God when they get saved. And then the, the people who've been saved a long time go all kinds of crazy questions and comments. Uh, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, when he started bringing the uh, hippies into the church, many of the, many of the long-term members said, well, they're destroying the carpet with their dirty feet. So his answer was, okay, we'll just tear out the carpet because he was going to minister to the people God called to minister. But these are the problems that happen when you start branching out.
like everybody else, whatever that might mean in that area. Chuck Smith, it was the hippies. Sometimes it's the inner city bringing in, and you're bringing in uh, people of different races, uh, poor people or rich people. It doesn't really matter. There's a friction that can be built up, and here we have the friction between the Jews and the Gentiles. How dare you bring these Gentiles into our church? Uh, and then, uh, and they started with, you know, you went into men uncircumcised and did eat with them. Now remember when Peter went to Cornelius's house back in chapter 28 and 29, he said that this was going to be a problem. He goes, it is unlawful for me to go into your house, to even go into your house, much less to eat with them. And he knew that that was going to be a problem. And yet Jesus had done this on more than one occasion. He had gone into the house of the centurion. He had gone into the house of different people and ministered. So it shouldn't have been a problem for any of these people. But many times we get our mindset on what is right, what is good, and seek, don't seek God. <laughs> and here Peter then gave him this whole story. And I'm not going to go over that whole story again. We've read it twice already in chapter 10 because we read it when it happened and then we read it again when Cornelius rehearsed his part and Peter rehearsed his part. So this is the third time in two chapters that we've read this same story and it's the same same story. Peter goes, I saw the vision, God said go and I went. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I love the way he ended this statement in verse 17. For as much then as God gave them the, a light gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand to God? <laughs> this is the beautiful answer. When we really start understanding God, are we going to stand up against him for our tradition, or are we going to hold up to the word of God? Jesus ran into trouble with the Pharisees and the, and the scribes because he violated the traditions of men over and over again. And I think he did it on purpose. I think he was having fun, you know, violating their traditions, but staying within the law of God. Uh, I think he was having fun making them upset. And I, I have to say, I've done this in several churches myself. When, when there's something that has been come up and it's not biblical and they make a big deal out of it, I will purposely break their traditions just to bring the point up. So they will challenge me and say, this is what God says. And it's important for us to be able to look and say, God, what do you say? It's easy to get wrapped up in tradition. It really is. Um, you know, sometimes I look at what we do here in the church and there's a lot of tradition in what we do. We do a an end of the month dinner. We do, we do some things and I don't want them ever to just become tradition so that if we stop doing them, everybody freaks out. You know, we're, you know, we're not doing what you always do. Uh, but patterns are good and they can be good for us. But if we make them, if we get into the place where you have to do it this way, we ended up in a problem. And for the Jews, they kept adding two things. They were not, the Jew was not to go into the house of the Gentile because he might touch something that is unclean. He might eat something that was unclean. So to prevent any opportunity to do anything unclean, 
they said don't even go into their house. And they made it a rule that you could not go into their house. And the Jews have had a habit of doing this. They put great big fences around God's rules with even heavier rules. And their logic is that if you violate the human rule, you haven't violated God's rule. And you know, the church does this kind of stuff a lot as well. Uh, I believe that Adam did this to Eve. Because what did she tell the serpent when the serpent asked her about the fruit? We cannot even touch the fruit, lest we die. God said only you can't eat it. And I really believe it was Adam who told her, we can't even touch it. And so he had set her up so that when she touched the fruit, she didn't die. And then it's like, well, maybe I've been lied to and able to eat it. And this is the problem with making bigger fences around God's word, is we can really trap people. Many churches will teach that sex is bad rather than sex outside of marriage is bad. And then the poor people married when they're allowed to have sex and they're struggling with what they were taught all the years of their, of their training, that it's bad. And they, they, one side, now they're told, then they get married and you're told, now it's okay. But that's not what they were taught for years as teenagers. And we need to be careful that we teach God's word accurately. And that may mean there's times when we look at it and say, wow, I have not believed correctly. And there's been times over my lifetime when I get into God's word and go, well, you know what, God, I, I didn't really believe that way before. <laughs> uh, but now, I guess uh, your, your word is telling me that I was wrong. And then when we get to that point, we need to be ready to change what we have always believed to match what is there. The, gen the Jews were taught Gentiles were put on this earth to go to hell. Jesus taught them that they, were, they weren't, and now we're seeing through the church that they're being told the Gentiles are, are going to get the gift of God. Now the sad thing all through this, we've studied the Pentateuch, we've studied at various places where God says the Gentiles will come into redemption. In the Pentateuch, he kept saying, these are your sacrifices and these rules are for you and all people. The all included Gentiles. And yet, they kept Gentiles from worshiping God and never opened the door, which is why they were put on the back shelf, because they were not opening the door for the God to be reasoned to them or for Jesus to, to be reasoned to them. And God says, no, we're going to reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel message. And this is why we as Christians have to reach out to everybody and probably even especially those that we don't think are like us and it's hard I remember a class in, per, in, in communication where we were t purposely told to pick somebody that was not like you that you would not normally uh, talk to for the exercises that we were doing and you know I ended up picking up somebody that was very much unlike me and had a hard time <laughs> You know, but this is what we're to do as Christians. Otherwise, we just get a group of uh, very similar people, all worshiping God, all happy because nobody's ever different. And difference challenges us. And this is important that we get that challenge from people that are different.
because we might be able to help them and they may be able to help us. It's amazing for me as a long-term Christian to, to get around a new Christian. I love being around new Christians. They're excited. Everything is new, especially somebody who has got a really bad past. And they're going, I am just so excited about God. Now they're going to make lots of mistakes. They're going to do a lot of crazy things. But you know what? They also challenge us who have been walking with God for a while. Because they're, they're, crazy, they're crazy enough to go tell people about Jesus. You know, and they're not intimidated. You know, they have to learn to be intimidated when they get asked enough questions they don't know the answers for. But that new Christian, that first year or two, the persons who saved, they're excited. They're telling everybody. And they really do put most of us people who have been saved for a long time to shame. Because we just, it's old hat. You know, me, me and God, we got our life put together and, you know, everything is going good. And, you know, yeah, I realize they're all going to hell, but, uh, you know, God and I are okay. <laughs> you know, but that new Christian, part of it is that they know lots of non-unsaved people. The people they used to hang out with are unsaved. They're going to hell and they know that they're going to hell and they get excited. And part of the problem is the longer we walk with God, the, our old friends start disappearing <laughs> because we go to church, we're not going to the parties, we're not, we're not doing the stuff that, they, that we used to do as a lost person. And we're not as fun to them because we are, you know, think we're better than they are or straight-laced, all the things they accuse us of. And eventually our paths start separating. And it gets to be a little harder to share because you don't have as many people to share with. And that new person, it's fun to watch. And it does make us get a little excited, at least I do, to be around them and see how excited they are. And it kind of shames me a little bit. And my part to them is to help train them to be more able to answer their questions and to be more stable in their relationship and their excitement is to get me to be more excited. So we need those new Christians. We need those young Christians around. We need people that think differently than we do. You know, uh, the statement has been said many times, what would happen in the church if everybody was like you? you know, and that's quite an interesting statement. For some people that means the church might be rich and for others, it means the church would be extremely poor. For some people, there'd be teaching going on. For some people, that would mean nothing was going on. Uh, maybe for certain people, that means lots of people would be getting saved. And for other people, nobody would be getting saved. We need each other because we all bring something to the body of Christ that is different. And ideally, we want everybody to tithe, so that shouldn't be a problem, but... It, it is where we're at. And Peter says, I remembered that Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit when he saw these Gentiles being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Remember, that was the big thing. God had come upon these Gentiles, and all of a sudden, Peter, and he says there were six people with him. We didn't, before that, we didn't know how many people were there. Seven Jewish believers saw an entire household of people that weren't Jews get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they're going, 
it blew their minds. <laughs> you know, it's like, what just happened here? Because as far as they're concerned, Gentiles were not accepted by God. And it really has expanded their horizon. And this is one thing that I say so often. When we walk with God, God keeps broadening our horizon and, and our understanding. And it's an amazing thing. Whatever we think we know about God is too small. And I don't care how big you think you know God. Wherever you're at with your thoughts of God, it's too small. Peter and, the, and all the other Jewish converts were, wow, God is doing a wonderful thing for us Jews. It's, it's God and us Jews. And God's saying, uh, no, you're, you're too small. He said, I told you to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God is saying, and I meant the uttermost parts of the earth, not just the Jews in the uttermost parts of the earth. He says, everybody. This is a shock to them. And it's hard for us to understand what this means. Um, it's very hard for me because I do not judge people by their race or their color or, or, their, or anything else because I've been so steeped in the word that I don't want to judge. And, I don't, and, I, and having been around military personnel that had their act together, I saw nothing but good races for, many, for all, my, all of my childhood. It wasn't until I got to be an adult that I started to begin to understand, and I believe it's economic rather than race. The poor people have a mentality that works to give me. And now it's moving up the middle, middle class and probably as high as the upper class. Everybody wants a give me attitude nowadays. And here, but this was embedded in them. Jews did not intermix with Gentiles. And now they're being said, God is telling them, we, I am for the Gentiles. And Peter's answer was, what was I that I could withstand God? I love that answer. Who am I that I can withstand God? Who are you that you can withstand God? It's a very important question when we see that God is not matching our thought process. Uh, God, I guess you are the one that we need to pay attention to. And it is very true, but it's also very humbling. The very sad thing is we get into this place where we think we know God, we think we know where God wants, and what do we do in the process of doing that? We make ourselves God. God, I've got it all figured out. I know exactly how you're going to behave. I know exactly what you're going to do. And I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And when we do that, we've boxed God in, and God likes to step out of the box and prove to us that we don't know anything. But it really is that we raise ourselves up to be God. And the question is, how often do we raise ourselves up to be God? More often than we ever want to think, think it is, at least I know I do, in very subtle ways. And the problem is we're not really thinking that we're making ourselves God. But when we think we've got it all figured out and we're not going to God, we have all the answers. <laughs> we're basically telling God, yeah, you just stay up there. I've, I've got it down here. I've, I'm God of my own world. I, I got this okay. And we don't actually say that because none of us are going to, you know, there's no other gods before us, we, before God, and we know that. But yet we act so often that we're God and making ourselves God, our knowledge God. And 
You know, I can picture God just shaking his head sometimes up in heaven. Don't you guys know what you're doing? You just violated another one of my commandments again. You know, now I've got to show you who got, who's God and who's not God. You know, and it's one of those things, you know, we jokingly say at seminary, you only learn two things. There's one God and I'm not him. And it takes us the rest of our life to learn that. Because so often we try to put ourselves in God's place. And Peter's going, who was I to withstand God? God? God showed me the Gentiles were going to be ministered to. And, and then when they heard all these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This is a big statement for the, for the, for the disciples and the uh, Jewish believers. God actually wants Gentiles. Now, it shouldn't be that big a deal. In Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. And at the end of Daniel, uh, Cyrus is the one who's being used by God to send the people back, and he's the one that pays for the temple being built. Uh, we see all these different people all through time, Rahab, uh, uh, Ruth, all these people that become into Christ, uh, Judaism. Uh, and as far as we know, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus never became Jews, but they became followers of God. So we see it over and over in the scriptures that people followed God. You see it in Balaam, who was a prophet of God, even though he got greedy and fell, and fell the wrong way, and fell way away from God when he fell. But he was following God before that. He spoke with, God, with God's authority until he got greedy and wanted the gift from the king of Moab uh, for, to curse Israel. And even though he went up there and God would not let him curse him, he finally came down and said, well, you know what, you, I can't curse them, but we can get them to curse themselves. Send in, send in the girls to uh, get them to worship idols. Uh, and so he felt, when he fell, he fell completely away from God. But we see over and over God ministering to Gentiles all through the, all through the Old Testament. We have Nate, uh, Nate, Nahum, the general from uh, Syria that got cleansed of his leprosy. Anyway, that guy. He, he went to see Elisha, and Elisha gave him a real hard assignment. Go wash in the River Jordan seven times. Now, the River Jordan is not a very clean river. He did not want to go into the River Jordan. But he had a very wise servant and said, if he had asked you to do anything hard, wouldn't you have done it? And he goes, yes, of course. But he goes, well, why won't you wash any river? And he goes, it's a dirty river. <laughs> There's cleaner rivers back home. How many times does God ask us to do something simple? And that's exactly, that's too easy. God, it, following you can't be that easy. Yep, so simple, so easy, you won't do it. Many people have that to get saved. Just turn to Jesus. I can't be that easy. I have nothing to do in it other than just ask Jesus. Yep, that's exactly what you're to do. Ask Jesus. So well, here we are, and we're going to continue here because this is our story. But this is a big, this is a bigger deal than we really anticipate because we're Gentiles. 
We're happy that this happened, but we really don't understand it that much because this is not something that we experience. Now, if somebody has some racist attitudes in them, imagine that God told you to go minister to that person. Anybody that you just say, there's no way I could go talk to them. That's where they're, that's where they're at. All right. Verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose from Stephen traveled as far as Venetia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto Jews. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spoke to the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. All right. We're seeing God reach out to more Gentiles. So we found that when Stephen died, a persecution happened. And if you remember early on in the, in the book of Acts, all the Christians that were called the followers of the way at that time left Jerusalem except for the disciples. So people scattered. They went to different places. This list is only three places. Uh, Phoenicia is near Mount Carmel. It's about 70 miles from Jerusalem. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean. It's about 260 miles from Jerusalem. And the city of Antioch is in the capital of Syria. And it is about 320 miles from, from Jerusalem. So in other words, people are traveling. They're scattering all over the place. And where they go, they share Jesus. And they start churches. And then we have 20, verse 20. And some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Now Cyprus um, uh, is over on the island, uh, island. And Cyrene is a city in North Africa, which is now called the uh, country of Libya. So these people are coming. Libya is about 800 miles from Jerusalem. <laughs> these groups from Cyprus and from Cyrene come to Antioch, which is where all of this, you know, just above where all of this is happening, and they talk to Grecians, Greeks. They start preaching to Gentiles. <laughs> Now, why they start preaching to Gentiles? Who knows? Maybe they've heard the story of, of Peter. Maybe, maybe they're just listening to God, and God said, go into all the world, and they're going to all the world. And they preach to Gentile Greeks. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. All right? And so we have another church starting. Peter starts a church in Caesarea with... Uh, man, my brain is yes, centurion. What was his name last week? <laughs> huh? Cornelius. Cornelius. I'm going to go home. I'm getting too old to do this. I guess. <laughs> too much turkey. <laughs> Peter starts the church in Caesarea with Cornelius and the Gentiles. These guys. Now note, these guys are going to Antioch. They're not, approved, they're not even asking for approval from the disciples to go speak to Greeks. They just go preach to the Greeks. 
and they start a church in Antioch of Gentiles. They did not go, they, apparently from what we're seeing, they didn't even do what Paul did and go to, the, go to the Jew first in the synagogue, be rejected and go to the Gentiles. It just says they started preaching to the Greeks. And they built a church. All right, verse 22. Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and saw, had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with prayers, uh, with purpose of heart, they should cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. All right. You got these guys coming from Cyrene and Cyprus. They preach to the Greeks. The Greeks get saved. There's still this problem with the mentality of the disciples that Greek, that uh, Gentiles are getting saved. Because it says, when these things came to their ears, they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Why? We got a Gentile church starting up there, right? You know, Barnabas, go check it out. Make sure that it is legitimate. But there's still this prejudice against the Gentiles. And prejudice is something that can be so devastating to any group, whatever that prejudice might be, uh, whether it's uh, against skin color, nationality. Most of the prejudice in those days was nationality more than color. In our day, it becomes color. In some places in Europe, it's still nationality. And they, it's an amazing thing in, in many groups of, in Europe, even though they'll, both groups will be white people, they'll know that who, who is Italian or who is Polish or who is Finnish or who is German because they'll find the features that are common in those, in those, in those uh, places and they'll pick out and they'll be prejudiced against them. Well, we can't be, we can't be doing this. And it's kind of funny the attitudes and how they change. Uh, when I was going to Bible school, the group of guys were, were telling Pol Polish jokes. And this uh, Finnish guy was sitting there, and he didn't find any of them funny. Because Poland is right next to Finland, and they don't find the, fin they don't find the Polish, the Finnish don't find the, the Polacks as being stupid. Now, the funny thing was, he started to tell his jokes. They were Italian jokes. They were the same exact jokes, <laughs> except the butt of the joke was Italians. But they were the same jokes. Yeah, and he was laughing his head off you know, because he thought that was so funny because apparently in Finland, the, the Italians are the stupid people. Yeah. But this goes to show you how prejudice can really influence people. Uh, and here, the disciples are still going, all right, we got another, we've got another <laughs> Gentile church up there. Now, terror, terror of terrors, horror of horrors, and this one wasn't started by one of us. It was bad enough when Peter started one. At least he was one of them. But here, we have a Gentile church being formed, 
and they're sending Barnabas to go check it out. Barnabas, go check out this church and find out what is going on up there and report back. And it's quite interesting that when Barnabas gets there, what does he see? The people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're excited about God. They're worshiping God. They're, they're studying the scriptures and they're being taught correctly. And he found out when he saw that they had the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to keep seeking after God. I love Barnabas. Barnabas was quite a, quite a character. He's the one that brought Saul to the disciples and said, hey, he has changed. He is converted. He is made into a disciple. And he brought Saul. And after all this, he says he went to Tarsus. And Tarsus is only about 30 or so miles away from Antioch. It's not a very far trip. Why did he go get Paul or Saul at this time? Because Saul was a mighty teacher. When he was in Damascus, he taught. When he went to Jerusalem, he taught. And he knew the Bible. This is one of the things that was wonderful about Saul. He had been trained. He was a Pharisee. Now, one of the things about Pharisees, they had to memorize the Pentateuch. What does that mean? The first five books of the Bible. He had to be able to, to, to speak the Pentateuch verbatim. Then he had to be able to quote the various rabbis that had taught on the Pentateuch. He was well versed. He. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So it's been a while since Saul had persecuted Stephen, right? Yes. It didn't seem like it was that long, but it had been years, right? Saul pers pers uh, killed, had the, the Stephen yeah. incident. He persecuted the church. Yeah. He went to Damascus, and we don't know what period of time was there. Yeah. After he got saved, he went into the desert of desert for three years. Yeah. Then he came back to, Samaria, uh, to Damascus and preached until they wanted to kill him, and we don't know how long that was. Then he went to Jerusalem and preached the gospel until they wanted to kill him. Yeah. And then he went back home. So we have at least four or five years since he's killed Stephen. And that's a good point because I usually bring that up. We Time in the scriptures is hard to understand because there's not a lot of time markers. The only reason we know that he went into the desert was because he told us in one of the books. I got saved. It was spent three years in the desert being taught by, by God and then I went to see the disciples. So three years from the time he got saved. From the time he got saved and we don't know without getting into history how long he persecuted the church, and it's hard because they don't usually break the persecution of the church from into Saul's time persecuting it, because it continued after he, after he was taken out. And so, yes, we're, we're at least, I would say, minimum of four or five years from the persecution of Stephen at this point. Uh, so Barnabas goes out to, Saul, uh, to Tarsus. He gets Saul, brings him back to Antioch, and they preach and teach for a year. Now, Barnabas was sent to Antioch to come back and report to the Jews <laughs> in Jerusalem, the rest of the disciples. And he stays there for a whole year before he ever comes back to talk to them. And we're going to find out as we go further in, into the scriptures and Acts, Antioch 
becomes a center place for Christianity. The disciples never go to Antioch, but Saul starts his missionary trips from Antioch. All right, so the church in Antioch becomes a powerful missionary church reaching the world. And that is where this whole process, and it says, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. All right, before that, they were called the followers of the way. It was considered a sect of Judaism. Antioch is a Gentile church. And they were called Christians. And the, when it first was a, attached to them, it was a, a pejorative. They were, were not saying it nicely. They were saying, you're nothing but little Christ followers, which is what Christian means, Christ follower. And they basically took it on and said, we like that name because that's what we are. They, they were attacked by it. And one of the great things we can do when we're attacked is kind of embrace it. I loved it when I was in, in college back in the 90s and people used to call me intolerant because of my Christian beliefs. And you know what I would tell them? You are absolutely right. I am intolerant of, your, of, of this idea that there is no rules. God gives us rules. Because it's not going to work sometimes. The more we try to fight something, especially if it's not that big a deal, you're nothing but a bunch of Christ followers. Hey, that's a really good term. We like this. And they embraced that term. What, what, what are your attackers going to do at that point? You, you took their term and used it. Now, if it's really bad, don't, don't embrace it. But, but if it's not that big a deal, embrace it. You know, for us to be able to say, as Christians, we have become the most intolerant people because of the new definition of tolerance. Everybody that's older, like we are in this room, tolerance used to mean that we would tolerate what you do. You, you're wrong, but you have the right to be wrong. In today's world, tolerance means that you have to say that somebody else's opinion is equal to your opinion. So Christians now are the most intolerant people because we say God's opinion is what counts. And we don't care if you think homosexuality is okay. We don't care if you think lying is okay. We don't care if you think murder is okay. We don't care what you believe because this is what God says. We are intolerant. Because we cannot say that, you know, hey, you know, you Muslims, you're okay. You know, you, you don't believe what we believe about getting to heaven, but you just keep doing what you want. And you might get to heaven, you know, that's not true. They're going to hell. Every other religion is headed to hell because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we need to be intolerant by today's definition. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I'm tolerating. If they want to be wrong, that's, that's between them and God. I'm not going to sit there and criticize them, but their way is not the right way. And I'm not going to be so tolerant by the world's definition to say, well, you know what, you're, you're okay. You, you, you keep believing you're going to heaven because of what you believe and, you know, and it's all all right. It's not all right. I do not want to see them go to hell and I'm not going to tell them that it's all right. And this makes us very intolerant. Why? Because we have standards. This world has no standards, supposedly. It's really wonderful when they will tell you that there's absolutely no absolute truth. 
you know, and I used to love that. There's no absolute truth. I'm going, is, are you absolutely sure that there's no absolute truth? And you know what? Most of them never understood what I said. They'd look at me like, what? I go, you just gave me an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. So by your own definition, there is absolute truth. <laughs> because you said there's absolutely no absolute truth. You know, it's a total illogical statement when people say that there is no absolute truth. Because that's an absolute statement. And yet, they will reject any other absolute truth. But in their heart, they know that what God says is true. They really do. Anybody who's in the middle of a sin knows that it is a sin. You know, those people who are sleeping around with a new person every night and committing fornication know that it's not right. They may, they may carterize their heart and their, and their convictions, but they know that it's not right. The people who are getting drunk every night know deep down in their heart that it's not right, it's not good. Now, they're powerless to change it without an attitude change and a new heart, but they know that it's not right. And for each one of us, we have some sin in our life that we struggle with at times, that we know is not right, that, but it just has us. And God is saying, let me take that sin. Choose me over that sin. So Barnabas is up there. All this stuff is going on. And it's very interesting of what is happening. In verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. All right. Barnabas hasn't returned. <laughs> so we're going to send a few more people up there. <laughs> and there stood up one of them named Archibus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also did they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so we have a few more people being sent to, <laughs> sent to Antioch. Uh, we don't know what happened to Barnabas. Uh, he hasn't come back. <laughs> What's going on? We sent him a year ago. There's been no report, so they send up a few more prophets. And remember, prophets are one that speak with the authority of God primarily. And it goes, we have one named Argabus, and he signified or said, made known, that there would be a great dearth throughout all the world, a famine. There'd be a big famine. And there's this little footnote, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, this is very interesting, because now we have a time marker, if we look at history. Claudius Caesar started reigning in 41 AD and reigned for 13 years. During his reign, the Roman Empire had four major famines. All right? In his first and second year, he had a famine in Rome. In his ninth year, it was in Greece and there's one that they didn't give a night down, but the, the third one they said was so severe they called it a divine judgment. And four to six years into his reign, there was a big one that was mostly in Judea, which would be a big deal to Jews. <laughs> that would be their world. 
So I am going to say that this particular one probably is going on between 45 to 47 AD. So this gives us our time marker that we were looking for. We're, we're about uh, 13 years outside of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so much time has passed. At the best, we're nine years out. All right, so we're nine to 13 years out from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The church has been around for just over a decade or right at a decade, just slightly over, when all of this is going on in Antioch. And it's kind of an interesting thing. And it said, verse 29, then the disciples, and this is not the disciples in Jerusalem. This is the disciples in Antioch, the followers of Christ, because a disciple has a, has a generalized term. A disciple is one who follows a discipline or a teaching. So we are all disciples because we are choosing to follow Jesus and his word. So we're all disciples of Jesus. So these disciples are in Antioch. And it says, Every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. This is quite an interesting thing. The church in Antioch, which was not approved of by the, by the disciples, kind of. I mean, I'm sure that Barnabas had sent some reports saying, hey, we're up here, we're building a church. These Gentiles are doing a good job. They're following God. The disciples in Antioch said, things are really bad in Judea. We're going to help them. Now, there were two problems in Jerusalem. There's got the famine that was predicted, and as things got tight, the Christians were being rejected by the Jews. So to the point in Jerusalem that if you were a Christian, you could not shop at anybody's shop because you were, you were, you were worse than a Gentile. Gentiles couldn't shop at their shop, and you were worse than a Gentile because you had turned your back on Judaism as far as they were concerned. So... Gentiles were bad, and you were really bad because you're a reprobate. You have turned away from good works. You have turned away from the sacrifices because you believe that Jesus died for your sins, and he's, he's the one into heaven. So they were not able to shop in their store, and if they owned stores, nobody would shop at their store other than the other handful of Christians. This happens even today in the Muslim world. If somebody becomes a Christian, they will be rejected. They cannot shop in the Muslim stores. They, the Muslims will not shop at their stores if they own stores. And they actually attack them. For the Jewish world today, if in an Orthodox Jewish family, if one of their children gets saved, their family will have a funeral for that individual. That child is dead. Even now. Even now. I have a friend or somebody, an acquaintance, who was from an Orthodox family. When he became a Christian, they held a funeral service for him. They would not take his phone calls. They would not answer any letters. They would not listen to any news. They would not give him any messages. He abandoned the faith as far as they were concerned, and he was dead to them. Muslims, Muslims, Muslims will go out and kill, actually kill them so that, they're that they really are dead. It is serious. And so here 
you've got two big problems going on in Judea. The church is having trouble because people are, re are turning their back on them. But there's 5,000 of them, so they're not totally destitute. They're, they're all just, they just have a much smaller place to have business. But where do you go buy your stuff? Unless somebody else is able to supply you, you can't even get the supplies unless another Christian is able to supply you. So there's a dwindling of supplies. There's a major famine that was prophesied there. And the church in Antioch says, we're going to gather up help and send help. And it says, every man gave according to his ability to help out this other church that doesn't even like them. You know, who's tolerating them at this point. You know, one of the greatest ways to bless somebody that doesn't like you is to help them. You know, and this was told to us all through the scripture. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Now, I'm not sure that the Jerusalem church hated them. They only tolerated them. These are a bunch of Gentiles. We, we can't go to their church and minister up there. We can't eat with them. We can't do anything with them. And they send gifts to Jerusalem because things are so bad there. And they send this great gift by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And Saul will tell us later on, or Paul, he, he even continued this as he was ministering to the churches and said, there's a need in Jerusalem. And he says, when I come back, I'm going to take up an offering for all the church in Jerusalem so that we can take it back to them. You know, what a ministry that. Now we in, in the Southern Baptist have our Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong where we help missionaries. This is similar to this, except we have the idea that hopefully we like our missionaries, that we're not just tolerating them. Uh, you know, here they're sending it to the mother church, you might say. <laughs> but Antioch is rejected by them. Antioch is off by itself. It's being ministered to by Barnabas and Saul. They're pretty much, now the, the Cy, Cyprus and Cyrenes were the ones who started it, but Barnabas and Saul are the ones that are really discipling them, getting them to grow. And they're saying, there's a need down there. Let's, let's get an offering for them. Let's help them because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, we need to be able to do that. If there's a church that needs help, another church who's, who's doing well should be able to help them. And I've seen this over and over again, you know, out there. Uh, there was a church that, we, that I was in and there was a church that was asking for help. They wanted some church to loan them money. And I looked at the budget of our church and said, we've got a lot of money in the, in the bank. Why don't we just give it to them? And I was not anybody important, but I'm going, we have, a, we have I can't remember, we had like $40,000 in the bank, and they only wanted $10,000. And I'm going, why don't we just give it to them? They're a brother church, you know, and they were another Southern Baptist church in the area. And the church voted to give it to them. And they were so appreciative of just being given a gift of that size, without strings, no attachment, nothing, just... This is for you. This needs to be done by churches over and over again. Churches help each other or should help each other. If they have some wealth, they should be sharing it. The last thing we should be doing is stockpiling money in our church. 
Now I understand that having a cushion, a push, you know, cushion just in case, but we should not have tens and thousands of dollars, hundred thousand dollars in the bank, because the offerings are given to support God's work, and we should be out there. And these churches gathered money, and they sent it. They sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So when they gathered it all up, and Barnabas, it was time to go talk, talk to the church in Jerusalem. They said, here, you guys take this offering to them and just let them know that it's us, that we love them, that we care about them, because they are fellow brothers and sisters. This is the beauty of a body of Christ, that we can love one another, we can help one another, and should help one another. If there's a need, it should be reached out and, and churches should be able to help out. And for the most part, churches will do this. Sometimes when you cross denominations, it's not as easy to do. <laughs> but it is important for us to reach out and help other Christians. And this was the attitude. And I'm sure this was probably led by Barnabas. Barnabas had a heart to help people. He's, his name was Son of Encouragement. He was always encouraging people. He was always building them up. And he's probably saying to the church of Antioch, we need to help Jerusalem. We need to help those Christians in Judea. They're starving to death. They've been isolated. We need to do what we can to help them. We need that same attitude as Christians. How can we help one another and help ministry go forward? That's it. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we saw the beginning of contentions that it started within the first 10 years of your, the church. You know that because humans make up churches, there will always be contention, but you are God. You are in charge. Help us always to focus on you, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email 
at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.